my night bloomers. Welcome back to Trinity Radio, our monthly podcast where we discuss goth and electronic music and the culture that surrounds it all. I'm your host, DJ Chesherin, and this is episode eight, Zombie Cocktails. We are going on a forbidden adventure through the American tiki lifestyle and toward the dark intersection of goth culture that we all love so very much. Of course, we'll play some music for you. We have history and a special interview with the true tiki gother, professional musician Jason Lee, to tell us more about the modern day tiki fandom and revival. You're listening to Trinity Radio. Come trek with me through a lush bamboo forest of mystery as we go back in time to the American tiki movement. What is tiki exactly? Some things that may come to mind are rum drinks served in a pineapple, wooden totem-looking things, and grass skirts. Tiki culture is a trend in lifestyle that emerged in the U.S. in the mid-20th century, primarily in the 1950s. The culture was inspired by the United States' fantasized imagery of the South Pacific Islands, like Polynesia, Hawaii, Micronesia, and more. The word tiki traces to Maori mythology. Uh, Maori are the indigenous people of New Zealand, and tiki refers to the first man. So to create a sacred idol of tiki, Maori people would carve an image of tiki as like a humanoid face into wood and stone. This would be a humanoid carving that they could use as a totem or like a small ornament to be worn as a necklace, also called a hei tiki. But in modern day, especially in the United States, these figures known as tiki idols were often oversimplified and adapted for decorative purposes, not really meant to resemble any one person or deity. For this podcast, I'll refer to the American tiki movement simply as tiki. Tiki's roots stretched to the 1930s in California. There was a bar run by a man who had this talent for creating fantasy and myths just as potent as his rum-based cocktails. Ernest Raymond Gant, a.k.a. Don Beach, was an American adventurer, businessman, and World War II veteran who was the founding father of tiki culture. He is known for opening the first prototypical tiki bar, Don Beachcomber, during the 30s in Hollywood, California. The bar was a rough-edged, tropical fantasy bar, basically meant to be one man's vision of an island rum shack. Don Beachcomber expanded to a chain of dozens of restaurants, and other tiki places started to emerge as well, like the Luau in Beverly Hills, the Tonga Room in San Francisco, and the Mai Kai in Fort Lauderdale, all creating these kind of like sticky, pineapple-sweet microverses. The menus tended to feature a mishmash of pan-Asian fusion dishes, if you can call them that. Um, Many tiki bars, oddly enough, served Chinese food or sticky, goopy spare ribs dubbed as teriyaki because in the 1950s, Americans didn't really know much or care much for authentically Polynesian foods. Tiki evoked a lost world of beaches, happy natives, and rum-fueled release, we'll just say. This was Eisenhower's America at the time. It's nothing but like work, work, work. These tiki bars kind of became a place where everything could just slow down. And it's where time stopped. There's no windows. In a way, it's always twilight. And you could just like loosen your tie and kick back to decompress. While tiki culture draws on elements of Polynesian and Hawaiian cultures, when you see a tiki carving in a lounge, it was pretty much just like a statue. Like it doesn't carry a religious connotation or message to it. So with that said, there is a worldview that tiki started as a form of cultural appropriation, as it's often blending elements from different cultures, minority cultures, into a really like simplified, bleached, commercialized version. So with that said, some aspects of tiki culture are viewed as really problematic, culturally insensitive, and also historically inaccurate. 
Trinity Radio isn't promoting a stance on the matter. We're here for education purposes. And if you're so inclined, you're welcome to take your own informed stance. So key aspects of tiki culture include tiki bars and lounges, fashion, gathering, and of course, music, something new that we've never played on this podcast before. Exotica music is a genre of music popularized during the tiki era. So exotica music features these lush orchestral arrangements meant to resemble the setting and atmosphere of being in a tropical island. And when it comes to exotica music, Les Baxter is one of the most influential artists to popularize the genre. Born in 1922, Les Baxter was a pianist who composed and arranged for the top swing bands of the 40s and 50s, but he is best known for popularizing the tropical sounds of Exotica, a variation of easy listening music that glorified the sounds of Polynesia, South America, and Africa. No description of Les Baxter's music would really do it justice, um, but in effort to keep it kind of more modern and on theme with this podcast, I've selected one of the vintage hits, Tropicando, with a modern house music flair. So here's Les Baxter, Tropicando, Voodoo Crew remix on Trinity Radio. Tropicando, Voodoo Crew Remix, performed by the 101 Strings Orchestra. Les Baxter was most active throughout the late 50s and 60s. So along with another artist, Martin Denny, Les Baxter really introduced jungle and tiki music in soundtracks, singles, and compilations. 
pretty much any movie back then that took place with a beach party or had a palm tree, Les Baxter was on the soundtrack. He's really a master of mood music altogether. He pioneered this style that integrated American jazz augmented with Polynesian, Asian, and Latin instrumentation. The music also incorporated elements of Afro-Cuban rhythms, nature sounds, bird calls, unusual instrumentation, and the lush romantic themes of Hollywood. Baxter died in Newport Beach, California at 73. He achieved success with career accomplishments like the song Unchained Melody. Unchained Melody was the first million seller for Baxter, and he was awarded a gold disc for it. Baxter also worked in radio as a music director. He worked for Bob Hope and on the Abbott and Costello shows. When it comes to horror, Baxter worked on film scores inspired by Edgar Allan Poe stories like House of Usher, The Raven, and also did dozens of beach party soundtracks. Baxter also has a motion picture star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame and has been affectionately dubbed as the King of Exotica. Trinity Radio. In the 1950s, Tiki lounges gave us the opportunity to travel to a whole other world without having to go very far at all, or even step out of our air-conditioned room. The idea of having a vacation or living in a fantasy on your very own turf was super appealing. But what do you do about the kids? There's got to be more than just tiki bars and taking them to restaurants, right? Well, the answer came in 1951, when Walt Disney came up with the idea of having an amusement park next to the Walt Disney Studios in Burbank, California. The original Disneyland had a few different themed sections to it. There was Frontierland for the railroads, there was Tomorrowland for futurism and space travel, and Adventureland, capitalizing on the post-war tiki craze. And there was an enchanted tiki land built in 1963 as well. But that wasn't enough. There needed to be more lands, because at the time, the popularity of tiki had started to wane. Abrupt Wayne and Tiki popularity can be traced to three major historical events, the statehood of Hawaii, the start of the baby boomer generation, and the Vietnam War. Let's start with Hawaii. In 1959, after several years of Tiki excitement in the mainland, the Hawaiian Islands became an official part of the United States. This is a very important historical moment. The islands of Hawaii are physiographically and ethnologically part of the Polynesian Islands. Prior to 1959, Hawaii was an independent, self-governing monarchy. The independence stretched until 1893, and this is when American and European businessmen started to take a lot of interest in the Hawaiian Islands because they could make a lot of money from growing sugarcane and trading it. So in the interest of their business objectives, Americans used threats of occupation and armed forces to overthrow the Hawaiian monarchy and take over their land. Under a lot of protest, Hawaii's last reigning queen, Queen Liliuokalani, surrendered her authority of the Hawaiian Islands to the United States of America. This led to the much-protested annexation of Hawaii, and this also gave the United States Navy a long-term lease of Pearl Harbor naval base. So it's kind of a sad story about how the United States just used the Hawaiian Islands for convenience. Uh, the land of Oahu served as a mid-ocean stopover for the U.S. troops that were being sent across the Pacific. As a valuable territory to the United States, Hawaii was attacked on December 7, 1941 Pearl Harbor attack. This brought it to global and historical significance because it contributed to America's decision to enter into World War II. But why does this matter? So you have statehood in 1959, and after the 60s, the appeal of tiki really, really started to die off. Americans became more woke, so to speak. The traditionalist generation was viewed as retrograde, and their children, known as the baby boomer generation, was raised in a more globally aware world. 
what once seemed like a charming and naive view on island cultures started to seem tongue-in-cheek and even kind of racist. Around this time, the U.S. had also entered the Southeast Asian conflict of the Vietnam War. There was a large segment of the American population that was opposed to the U.S. involvement in Vietnam. So in the late 60s, in addition to this contention with Hawaii, there was an anti-war movement because many young people were being drafted. And a lot of people saw the violence as really unnecessary. In 1969, the Woodstock generation preached a philosophy of free love. So the term Woodstock Nation became a catch-all phrase for baby boomers who were basically hippies as we know it. They had a really strong sense of political activism, concern for the environment, they challenged gender roles, and were generally really pacifist. So these values are pretty contrary to the old-fashioned, politically incorrect ideas of tiki culture. And these hippie attitudes seeped into musical themes as well. So it was all central to the historical Woodstock Music and Arts Festival of 1969 and the sort of reform of rock and roll thereafter. So record labels and producers were catching on to this shift. They recognized that Exotica needed to adapt and that by incorporating elements of other genres, the new music could attract a broader audience. What started as lounge music went off into spin-offs like Calypso, Surf Rock, Rockabilly, and Gothabilly came about. What is Gothabilly, you might ask? The term Gothabilly was a subgenre invented by the band called The Cramps. Gothabilly, also known as Psychobilly, is a fusion of, you guessed it, goth, rockabilly, and punk. Active from 1976 to 2009, the Cramps are credited as creators of the psychobilly genre. The band combined primitive and wild rockabilly sound with that vintage 60s garage rock. This is the Cramps, Gugumak, on Trinity Radio. When the sun goes down and the moon comes up, I turn into a teenage Gugumak.
You just heard the Cramps, Gugumuk. The Cramps were led by husband and wife duo Lux Interior and Poison Ivy. The Cramps are credited as the progenitors of the psychobilly subgenre. While the psychobilly sound is much more menacing than exotica, there is still this sort of western swing and boogie sound to it. Where exotica sounds like you're by a pool, psychobilly sounds like you're by a swamp. And that's because there are elements of surf music and hillbilly music in psychobilly, right? So it's not as posh as tiki and exotica. But psychobilly also draws from country and blues storytelling, which often reflects of the experience and emotions of the American working class. So this should sound familiar. Both exotica and rockabilly emerged during post-World War II era. This period saw popularity of various music styles and genres blending and influencing one another. But you may notice some key differences here. This isn't just instrumental background music anymore. There are now words. Lyrics often revolve around themes like youthful rebellion, love, or just the struggles of everyday life. Early cramps had a psychedelic jungle sound. Their sound was influenced by surf music acts, post-glam, early punk. Other fusion genres like surf rock and rockabilly were known for their reverb-drenched electrical guitar sound, which resembled this feeling of wetness, kind of reminiscent of the ocean. It's important to note that not all rockabilly artists were influenced by exotica. However, the influence of exotica on surf rock and surf rock into rockabilly is an interesting example of how musical genres can intersect and borrow elements from one another. The Cramps have been cited as an influence by alternative musicians like The Black Keys, The Sisters of Mercy, My Bloody Valentine, and 45 Grave. By the 1980s, Psychobilly became more than just music. It also inspired a new fashion sense with black silks, corsets, top hats, antique jewelry, PVC, and leather styles that would influence gothic fashion. Through the 60s, we saw how the new generation of baby boomers rejected the faux pas aspects of tiki. The introduction of rockabilly and eventually punk were fusion genres that did grow to become subcultures of their own. And from today's point of view, they are very removed and distinct from tiki. But at the time, these apples really didn't fall too far from the tree. As we approached the 1990s, there did seem to be a sort of revival of the instrumental exotica sound. One example of where vintage instrumentals is mixed with modern rock sound is the sound of Los Straight Jackets. Formed in 1988, Los Straight Jackets is an American instrumental rock band that formed in Nashville, Tennessee. Like Exotica, Los Straight Jackets is mostly instrumental and atmospheric. It more so resembles surf rock and kind of goes back closer to the surf sounds than psychobilly and rockabilly, um, but there still is the prominent use of electric guitar, often featured with twangy and bluesy riffs and some simple bass lines. Well, straight jackets attire follows some of the mysterious tiki sensibilities. So one of the guitarists, Danny Amis, is a fan of luchador films in Mexican culture. 
So for the band's first gig in Mexico, Danny purchased them all these luchador masks and asked them to wear it just kind of on a whim. Um, But the crowd went wild with it and a tradition moving forward was born. So now the band is known for wearing these personalized Mexican wrestling masks along with very snazzy suits. By combining the lost sounds of surf rock along with their mysterious stage presence, the band developed a cult following for their stage shows. This is the song It's Monster Surfing Time by Los Straightjackets on Trinity Radio. Los Straight Jackets, it's monster surfing time. Los Straight Jackets has released 14 studio albums. Their album art ranges from the 50s mod style with subject matter from luchadors, zombies, holiday themes, and tiki iconography. Their style also takes inspiration from the 1950s vintage fashion like floral patterned shirts, suits, pompadour hairstyles. But I want to talk about the luchador masks for a moment. So in modern Lucha Libre, masks are colorfully designed to evoke the images of animals, gods, ancient heroes, and by wearing these masks, the luchador is kind of taking this identity on during the performance. Masks are also used to employ rituals and rites, and in adventure and horror, they're used to conceal your identity. Whether you're a hero or a villain, you might wear a mask. Look at the Phantom of the Opera, Darth Vader, Batman, Mike Myers, and so forth. So if you're listening to this, you most likely have a love for horror movies. Tiki culture, as it's represented in film and tourism, has a sense of appeal in its tropical enigma. The idea of like distant and remote islands kind of provokes this curiosity of like, what is out there? Is it something ancient, something supernatural, something mysterious? There is a certain kind of thrill in stepping into that unknown. 
When accompanied with artifacts like skulls, darkness, fire, torches, etc., this idea gives us a sense of risk and a seducing type of peril, which isn't too unlike the goth mentality. So let's go back to the 1960s for a moment. Because of Walt Disney's financial success with Disneyland, the amusement park industry was really taken off. Um, in the 60s, three more massive parks came about. There was Universal Studios, Six Flags, and the Busch Gardens chain. The haunted house phenomenon also became a culture icon when Disneyland's Haunted Mansion opened in 1969. By the 1970s, commercialized haunted houses had sprung up all over the United States. Since then, Americans have fallen in love with immersive and themed environments. So in the same era, you do see some crossover with Tiki Enchantment, Dark Adventure, and Horror. For example, you have the movie The Creature of the Black Lagoon from 1954. That's the story of where this archaeologist hunts for this amphibious humanoid monster in the Amazon. Um, and the Gilly Man in that movie is almost somewhat of a mascot for the Tiki goth crossover. There's also Godzilla, which is a horror film about a giant sea creature who came out of the islands of Japan. There's also the 50s American interest in ancient Egypt, right? So at the time, being in Egypt for oil interests introduced Americans to non-native concepts like mummies, tombs, and sarcophagus and curses. So both Tiki and Goth have a fondness of expeditions and mystery. And mixing horror with Tiki, as you see now, isn't anything new. But in today's world, there's a lot more sensitivity around celebrating other cultures without appropriating them. So Tiki Revival as of today isn't necessarily trying to patronize or recreate anything resembling true Polynesia itself. It's actually almost more of a tip of the hat to 1950s and 1960s Americana in general. And in some ways, Tiki is being reimagined by people who are more historically informed and people who simply know better. And that's part of what we're doing today here with this podcast. We're discussing the origins of tiki and ways to preserve the parts that should be honored. And here to talk to us today about the resurgence of tiki is my friend Jason Lee, professional guitarist, composer, guitar designer, leather goods designer, and obsessed cyclist. Mm -hmm. In terms of tiki, Jason is one of San Diego's top surf-based guitar players. He has been avidly playing guitar for over 30 years. His band, Jason Lee and the Riptides, is SoCal's premier surf lounge band, catering to every tiki event around the globe. In past, Jason has led one of YouTube's top instructional video companies, teaching guitar techniques for surf, rockability, <laughs> rockabilly, and spaghetti western genres through user-friendly tutorials. Jason also regularly records for TV and movies, supplying his vintage sound with a modern twist. Jason is also the founder and designer of Rivet Daddy, a custom-fitted and uniquely designed leather accessories company, adored by goths, rockabillies, and all those in between. Jason, thank you for being here today. Thank you for uh, coming up uh, to North San Diego, my hometown. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, like, I it's really hot today. Yeah. I was thinking like we'd have like a blue Hawaiian or like a pina colada, but this, yeah. is, this is just as good. This yeah. is your custom drink. A chai drink at my local coffee shop because, uh, Sierra, we were at the club last night dancing. On topic for the day. <laughs> we were at, where were we? Club Sabbat, which we've talked Sabbath. about in this episode. Where Rivet Daddy was born. Was it? Yeah. Yeah. So, Flat out. as I mentioned, Jason makes this leather where it's all custom pieces. Um, he'll share the progress shots and show videos just of the construction of everything he's making. And I love seeing the progression of it and then the engagement yep. you get from it too. Yeah, so I, I learned saw that it before, before you showed up last night. Exactly. Yeah. And I learned that from um, growing up in the music industry, just engagement, like hanging around after a show. 
going to the show early, making sure you like introduce yourself to all the bands, making sure you know the owner of the club you're playing. So you're talking about how it's important for you to mingle with people before your shows and get that interpersonal engagement. And that's pretty relevant because Tiki culture started pre-smartphones, pre-texts as like telegrams and stuff, right? Yep. Television. And I've also seen that Tiki seemed to have declined by the 80s again. Mm -hmm. like, so in your opinion, what has contributed to like modern day Tiki revival? Okay, I'm going to make this as like cliff notes as possible. So if you have the decline, let's call it, in the 80s of what's known as modern tiki, the oversized grandeur of the large tiki bar that four families can go out to and dine, if those kind of died off by the 70s and then you have this lull in the 80s, the resurgence starts to happen with only a few artists and they're by name. And Sven Kirsten is kind of the grandfather, in a sense, of what's called urban archaeology. So Sven Kirsten and the Tiki Carver Bosco, he lives here in San Diego, believe it or not. And a few of them would go around and find these old either apartment buildings called the Tiki's Apartments in L.A. And they'd still have these old Tiki carvings that were kept up that were carved by this amazing carver that did like the international marketplace in Hawaii. And so they'd start to kind of like archive this stuff and then kind of re-get back to like uh, where everything was and what was left and then what's also died off by looking at like postcards. And then you have at that exact same time, you know, you've got like Otto von Stroheim who started Tiki Oasis. Um, he was doing the zine right after them. Um, and they go around to all the thrift stores and find the Tiki mugs and all that because at that time there, was, there wasn't any new Tiki mugs to buy. And there was really only a few Tiki bars left. And so... You know, you have this like tiny thread that's basically holding on to what seemed like cliche, died off, pop Polynesia cultures. And so with that thread alone, it just started slowly building. And then some of the bands started getting into that style. Each year it just kept getting a little bit bigger and a little bit bigger. And then by the end of the 90s, it was insane. Those were all the guys at that time that I looked up to, and then now I play with all of them. They were telling me all the stories about how everything was just flyering, 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 no internet, just getting it out there, even the zines they were doing for Tiki. Um, and then you have this guy named Beach Bum Berry that put out this book and was able to reconstruct the recipes for the original cocktails from the bars and then put out a book so people could finally start doing this at home. So that's kind of the, the basis of what saved, in a sense, or brought back, you know, modern tiki. First, even talk about it today. It's like five people mm -hmm. that you can name. That's it. So um, what I'm hearing is it, it seemed to start off with like the preservation of artifacts. Yep. So we said like wood carvings, postcards. Yeah, I think that goes like in terms of if I travel to uh, Guam or Hawaii and I mail something to like my uncle in Boise, Idaho. But now in the world that we live in with communication and everything and... You know, you have anyone that has an old soul, <laughs> like anyone that's in the mid-century, any of that, they're, they're like, they kind of gravitate towards Tiki. Just because it has this, just this cool dark allure to it. And then let's be real, it's fueled by rum. So <laughs> we'll get into that too. But, yeah, but that's the best way I can describe the whole, why we're talking about it today. It had to have happened in like, you know, 80s, I'm going to call it 87 to 95. Mm -hmm. Coming back to like the center of the culture, what do you think it is centered around? So like goth is a music-based subculture and there are the unifying elements like how people dress maybe the hairstyles the movies they like the literature right but yeah. central to it is is pretty much the music so do you feel like tiki kind of has that anchor point there's four points okay. in my opinion ohana which means like family like we have a gathering mm -hmm. rum <laughs> music fashion 
Yeah. They don't need to be in that order. But to me, those are the four elements that you would need to kind of create like a like a three day weekender. Kind of touching on the same topic is escapism. So escapism in general is still kind of answering, you know, I think one of your questions of just what tiki is. But tiki it really is in the mo- in the American modern sense is escapism, where you're separating yourself from anything like a long week at work or things going on or just to celebrate on top of things going great in your life, all of it. You know, escapism is just to, to kind of mentally get away, disconnect, and you're only in this little bubble. And that's why with tiki bars, they're dark, you know, everything's like moody and dim. And any real tiki bar follows the Vegas rule where there's no clocks on the wall. Mm. So you're supposed to lose track of time mm. and there's no windows. Mm. So if you're ever at okay. a tiki bar, so so if you're ever at a tiki bar and they've got TVs going and stuff like that, it's not really a tiki bar. It is. They're just kind of throwing that on the menu um, sometimes. But a real tiki bar is very enclosed, dark, and that way you feel like you're in a whole nother dimension. That's mm-hmm. the point. False Idol in San Diego has done a fantastic job of that. I'm blessed that I get to play there. And it's the same thing. Like I'm watching this whole line of people down the street in downtown San Diego. Like it's bright out. It's like four in the day. And the second you walk in, you go through a wall of skulls. And then that's it. That's to transform you into a whole new thing. Mm -hmm. You're immersed. That's really what it is. You're immersed in Mm -hmm. all these handmade items that cover the walls. And that's kind of where I see the sort of like crossover between Tiki Goth is there's like this sense of like foreboding mystery kind of. Yeah, Um, it's supposed to be like in a cool way. I mean, mm -hmm. because I get all the like the really, really broad questions, like especially in my my guitar industry, like what I do by day. Like, and it's it's always like, what is that? Like, should I really go? I'm like, just go. I can tell you how cool it is, but they think, you know, it's it's so hilarious. Like it's in a public setting. They're not sacrificing anybody. Mm -hmm. I know the the Weekender is called Voodoo of Doom or whatever. I'm making it up. But like, you know, it's supposed to be this, yeah, this this mysterious allure that like you can't come here, but you're invited. <laughs> <laughs> but like in that's, the in the fifties, yeah. this mm-hmm. probably would have been very appealing. So and bringing it to the fifties because that's where it seemed to take hold. Like kind of post World War II, then around that time Korea was happening. So in the U.S., people are pretty aware of the fact that there's like a, a lot of trauma that people experience yeah. going to war. People kind of created this like fantasy of tropical settings as a way of escapism. There's two ideologies to post-war Americana tiki and how it could have started. One is that the servicemen would go to those bars that were kind of on the beach if they had a bad day, drink with their buds. And and the idea is that once they got back home, you still might want to have this little escapism in your back room because now you're living on a cul-de-sac. Mm-hmm. We were so domestic now. They probably got sick of it within the first few years of like the same punching in on the same job, the same pay every day and all that. And you know these Midwest homes that have a basement so they could convert the basement and do all that. And then mm-hmm. they'd have all their buds and their wives would come over and they could entertain. Um, and then you have the flip side where you have other servicemen and like, I never want to think about that again. And so exactly, there's this weird yeah. divide of like... Okay, that's, that's interesting because I found it ironic uh, that... It's created as an escapism, but then if you were fighting in Pearl Harbor, like why would you want to recreate your home to look like that? Yeah. <laughs> the place where yeah. you experienced all yeah. that trauma. But I can also see it as like re- reclaiming. It's not maybe not all bad for some people. And yeah. So, yeah, and that, that is a, a kind of uh, goth attitude. It's, it's sort yeah. of like longing for a little bit of that melancholia and reminiscent of a, a time we didn't live in. I, mean, I didn't live in the Gothic Renaissance or anything, no, but I'm yeah. or like with Poe, but I like right. that stuff. Yeah. And um, it, it appeals is a, to us. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a different kind of escapism. I mean, we don't have like Goth is 
there's not really the trapping of like palm trees and tropical stuff, but there is so much crossover with maybe like skulls, as you were describing, false idol or magic in general, curses, yep. mystery. So like it's relevant to bring up my age. So I was born in 1990, so I'm 33. So I was not in the 80s revival of, of this. So my like surface level of what comes to mind for Tiki for me or like a Tiki goth thing would be like, creature of the black lagoon or godzilla or indiana jones maybe a little bit of like the goonies and whether they are or not whatever but i think it's it's more of the atmosphere and the setting rather than like the actual factual elements in history it takes of you it. it puts you in a place for like a couple hours yes like specifically and that's kind of escapism where you're like oh yes. crap i left my i can't even check my phone sometimes a tiki bar could be more than people or it could be what people need and they don't know it what makes a great or a memorable tiki event? I've been blessed to play, I think, most of them around the world. And so I've been able to That's collect so cool. what's the good ones and what's, you know, and, and be a part of it. All right, and listen up, everyone. So a good a good tiki event needs to be well-rounded. You know, it can't just be like, oh, yeah, we're serving Mai Tais all weekend and we've got that really good band on Saturday night. You, you can't do that anymore. Like the tickets are, they're up there. These events I do, you know, two or three hundred for some of them. And so we got to give them something good. So you need good cocktails. So you got to get a rum sponsor and you have to have entertainment all the time. Full lineup every night of a four day weekender with really good entertainment. That's kind of mixed. Um, you need room parties. Okay. So room parties are where you rent out like a double suite in the hotel and you open it up and you make your own special cocktail just for the event. And you have a line of a hundred people going all the way down the hotel. And the hotel is inclusive. All tiki events have to be at inclusive hotels. So they're not open to any to the public. They're closed off for the whole week. You can't you can't rent a room there. And this way they can somehow get away with this crazy stuff that's been going on for 20 years. And then you need symposiums. And symposiums is the educational side of tiki. That would be it. That's your like your chili pot of of what you need. You know, and then you do these small, these little small ones too. Like I played last week at False Idol for a private luau for all the rum club members. And these people pay every month to be in the special rum club and they bring in these rare rums and the owner flies in and they bring me in for entertainment. Maybe that's the opposite of what you want of 5,000 people. So you've either got 5,000 people or you could potentially be paying the same amount just for one evening with 45 people. That's it. Okay, so we need to talk about the fashion. You see someone on the street and you're like, that's Tiki. Yeah. What do they have on? Oh, yeah. I broke it down and because we're so entrenched in the goth community, I don't want to like break it down by gender, but you have to realize that we're going to go back to a time that was. Okay. Yeah. So let's just let's just get through that. Okay? Going back to the 50s. 50s, everything okay. was male, female form. Mm-hmm. So the guys, they're just going to have like, um, I know you can't see me, but what I'm wearing is like a, you know, vintage rayon, thin Japanese material, bright Hawaiian shirt, fits good, you know, or vintage bark cloth. That's a material that's like very woven, kind of thick and woolly feeling almost, but it has a really cool texture to it. And then recently in the last like 10 years, for men, you've had this huge resurgence of what's called the Sandwich Isles jacket. And it's the sport jacket that goes for like stupid money now. I'm blessed to have one that a fan friend, uh, Mitch, 
shout out uh, gave to me. I was just in Hawaii and I saw him for like $800, maybe $900. Sandwich aisles. What kind of sandwich? Yeah, you know, the tastiest one. I mean, we look good wearing them, you know. And women too. They look at the sandwich aisles jacket and rock it and it's great, but it's these silly, these silly rare things that catch on. It's like anything, you know, that just catches on and then they get super valuable and they trade them for hundreds of dollars. Yeah, you see them? They're really cool though. It almost looks like sort of like a tropically patterned blazer. Yeah, it's like I a thought blazer. of a sandwich can, like was no. it Elvis who like the peanut butter banana? Yeah, no, different. No, no, it's <laughs> just a company. It's just a company. But they created these ones, Rad. and they were just cool. nice enough for people to hold on to. Mm-hmm. Oh, Grandpa's that's kind of a nice jacket. You know, we shouldn't give that away. For a guy, you wear a nice pendant. You know, just wear a pendant. Nowadays, you wear a pendant that was carved by your favorite tiki carver. So tiki carvers now have gotten pretty smart, and they don't just make these $2,000 tikis for you to buy and try and fly home with. They make a pendant that's like hand carved. You could buy that for 80 bucks and you wear that around your neck because you're proud to wear that artist around your neck. Um, you know, so that would kind of be a really simple description for what the men would wear. Um, then the women, we move right into, you know, so think of like the same Hawaiian print. Mm-hmm. You know, you've got the tied top, simple little capris because it's going to be hot. You're going to be drinking cocktails around the pool. Um, and then we move into uh, the rare uh, Shaheen dress. Alfred Shaheen. Yeah, Alfred Shaheen. My ex-wife could go get a Shaheen down the street at a thrift shop for 50 bucks. She could sell for 800 right now. That's showing you where Tiki is gone. They have these asymmetrical cuts on the bust. You know, really beautiful. And so you see a girl, you go, that's a Shaheen. She goes, this is the best Tiki event of the year. Like, I've been waiting to bring it. You have to have a good handmade flower nowadays. But like, And you're going to buy that at a Tiki event. So there's actually going to be a girl with her booth. And she's got a really beautiful hair flower. It could have like a creature from the Black Lagoon inside of it. Mm-hmm. But you don't see it until you're like having a drink with her. Yeah. You know, stuff like that. Um, Again, the detail. Attention yeah. to detail. The ten- yeah. yeah. And then you can search this while we're talking. We're going to do the the couple. And this moves into like modern day where like every couple. So anyone that identifies as anything and they're a couple, you do matchy-matchy, it's called. It's oh, a cool I thing. see. So yeah, you, you, get mo- you can get Halloween themed ones now with Tiki and... Matchy-matchy is an adjective used to describe something or someone that's excessively color-coordinated. Yep. And yeah, so I would see here the guy in the sandwich aisles, like sports blazer with green mm-hmm. palm print, and then the woman in maybe like a, a halter bell-shaped dress, yep. the same. And that's like kind of in a sense what modern tiki is. It's just everything is like, it's pretty over the top. Yeah, it's, it's <laughs> so yeah, it's definitely there's the aesthetic. And then the final part, so we talked about the drinks, the gathering, the fashion, and the most important part to me, the music. Yeah. So you have a couple of bands, sure Dark do. Entities, and you have Jason Lee and the Riptides. Yep. I'd, I'd like to hear about both what musically, in terms of like your elements, your style, makes it appropriate for Tiki, and then maybe what other types of events would you fall under, you think? Yeah. So I'll touch on the elements of tiki music first, mm-hmm. more importantly, and then and then I'll talk about my uh, my bands. So the elements to original um, tiki or like because tiki music isn't actually considered like a term. It's exotica. Exotica is this form of music that is in our subconscious, but we don't know it. So you've got nine piece small bands that would play, you know, at the tiki bars, and it really takes percussion. Um, and vibraphone, that's really the big, big thing. I'm not talking xylophone, I'm talking vibraphone, the big one, like the six foot one. You have two mallets in each hand. And so with percussion, you've got like the the little um, squash where it's like a... 
and it's supposed to sound like very island. So really, yeah, those are kind of some of the key elements. Again, this like percussion, like bird calls, you know, oh, oh, mm-hmm. you know, it's silly, but like literally like these guys mm-hmm. would like lead their band and they'd be like doing the bird calls and you'd have your whole family just sitting right there. But yeah, so that's kind of some of the elements to, to really bring that sound again. Like, And nowadays, you know, things are moving so fast and it's band related. Um, and then should I touch on my bands? Yes, please. Okay, cool. So my main band um, of the last, we're coming out on our 19th year, is Jason Lee and the Riptides, um, a pretty predominant band, I guess you'd say, in the tiki scene, just because we grew up in it, you know. So we were playing all the surf events, surf guitar events, you know, that's another kind of subculture. But tiki is what I always gravitated to anyways. I had some around my house, stuff like that. You know, when you play surf guitar, you like tiki stuff anyways. And so it started growing, you know, we really pushed it hard. We got signed in 2010. That kind of blew up and we were able to travel a lot and grow but once we started doing all the tiki events our music started changing so I started really doing more research on tiki and going well how can I bring in the other elements and grow the band and then it became like we're an entity so nowadays we're just this, this big entity where I've got just so many people involved with the go-go dancers and they have all the fringe that flies and all that kind of stuff and it's again going back to like that polished show still no vocals still no vocals and we kill I've got amazing players Tony is the founder of that band with me and he still flies in from the east coast to play um and that's where we're at now it's just doing the bigger events because what happens is at tiki events you really need to get people dancing too Mm -hmm. it's very memorable and you're smiling and it makes me smile so i play better Mm -hmm. and then we play more songs for free at the end of the night or something like let's just keep going you know that kind of vibe there's also like power in improvised nature too and i think because you're so skilled you're able to do that you can just respond to a vibe but as opposed to just like pre-writing like lyrics which can be like so literal sometimes you're creating a vibe and that's what escapism is like it's not me telling it for you it's you taking what's around you and you creating like your own fantasy of based on the space you're in. yeah so uh, i guess that would be the best way to describe the riptides that band that that you know that we've got and um and then my new project which is dark entities yes yeah is really the crossover between goth and tiki because i grew up around these these uncles that were so synth forward and I got to play on every like vintage mode you could think of as a child. And that's now, luckily I own all that stuff. It's crazy. So my synth collection is like stupid. And I grew up around it. Um, my parents would like take me to all the Peter Murphy shows and all that. Like that was where, that's ironically where I grew up. And I thought Tiki was like the cool opposite. <laughs> so I was just so used to like new wave and, and goth when I was a kid um, in the eighties. And then I was like, well, Tiki's cool. Like, it's just kind of refined. Like, I'm, uh, Matt Reese is the uh, art director for Tiki Oasis, and he is the art director for my music videos. And he says that Tiki is where punks go to die. <laughs> it's, yeah, and I just, it's always stuck with me because they do. I mean, Tiki everyone's is where like, punks go to die. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> there, so Dark Entities is my true love that comes from all the cine, you know, the hundreds of like TV shows and films I've done for cinematic work. It's very moody and heavy. You get to hear a little bit of it. Yeah. Can you list like three differences where you're like, this is what is going to distinguish dark entities from riptides. What uh, makes one more goth than the other? Yeah. I mean, just all the vintage synths, everything that I use, mm-hmm. all real 808 drum machines. You're blessed to have a really amazing collection of all the OG equipment. Just got to Arp Omni. It was just 909 day yesterday. I know. Yeah, Mm. I know. I was very celebrating. 707 and 808 is my favorite. So that's just me, you know. Uh, 
but I see why you'd like the 909. Yeah, yeah. Like that stuff. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I know. Yeah, but um, we're talking about drum machines, people. Yeah, drum machines. <laughs> uh, really nerdy drum machines, but that is as what, opposed to bongo drums mm, or that's the idea. Timpanies yeah, and yeah. And mm. so with dark entities, you truly take dark wave. I mean, to the teeth, just a four to the floor with good snares. You know, it's all programmed now. So as opposed to like saying, you know, oh yeah, we're the Riptides are playing this tiki event. It's just we're keeping it loose and making sure everybody can dance. This is like really moody and cinematic. And so what I did was I write everything, um, I program everything. I still play guitar in it, but I'm leading all the programming with my feet. Mm. So it's still on the fly. Mm. And then I brought over Marty Lush. Look him up. He's like one of the top vibraphonists in the whole like industry. He's now with Dark Entity. So we've got the full, he's got the full gold, you know, six foot vibraphones. And he just played with me uh, at False Idol because of Dark Entities. So we've got that. And then we have uh, full timpani to really bring that orchestral, like cinematic sound. And so that kind of makes it tiki again. And... And that's it. it that's just, such a unique flavor, like synth drum machines, but then vibraphone and timpani. Oh, yeah. And you'll that's hear it. I'll great. send you some of the samples. Yeah, and we're going to put them in the show. And we're absolutely yeah. going to put it and, in the and show. And I for think sure. a lot of the goth people are going to go, oh, wait a minute. Like, this is, this is actually what he does. And it, it's always what I've done. It's just that I do so much contractual work. So now I'm like, all right, here it is. <laughs> like, here's the new project that I've been like keeping under wraps for a while. So, yeah, but yeah, that just kind of. I think it naturally happened because of my childhood background, being around goth so much, like from my mom. Then with my design company, Rivet Daddy, I'm just like super entrenched, you know, in the community doing that. So if that's on your mind every day, like for work, but then I'm writing music at night, mm-hmm. there's like no other way it can bleed into it. So you're living it. It is a lifestyle. Oh, for sure. That's what we pulled you on here for. Someone who is authentically living in um, more than just that, but yeah. certainly... Um, how I know you being so deep in, in the goth realm, not just as a composer and a musician yourself, but as a supporter. So thank you for telling us about your music. I can't wait to play it for everyone. Yeah, um, I think they'll like it. I think I think our goth community will go, oh, wow, okay, yeah, this I could see it. And then if they listen to Dark Entities, maybe they'll go listen to Taboo. And then they're going to hear the vibraphone and all the bells and all that stuff that makes yeah, it cheeky. But yeah, listeners, there's so many creative minds, intellectuals, artists, musicians, like fashionistas that I've, I have a very good listening base. It would certainly be interested in more, like the multifaceted aspect of yeah, the show. I'm honored that you had me on. So uh, Jason Lee is at Tiki Guitar Player yeah. on Instagram. Yeah. If you go to Tiki Guitar Player on Instagram, you'll see live performances of the Volcano stage at Exoticon with Dark Entities for the first time playing like this huge event, you know, and then you'll kind of see I'm like wearing Rivet Daddy, my guys are all like blacked out, you know, and it's like, it's like I'm changing all of you, you know, because I'm, I'm, I'm the dark, Dark Entities currently would be the darkest for Tiki in my opinion right like now. Like a Tiki golem, the way you just sounded. Yeah, really right. Yes. <laughs> All right, Chinatrons, immerse yourselves in an exclusive listen. This is Jason Lee's new project, Dark Entities, a fusion of exotica and dark wave. This is the song Undertow Guitar on Trinity Radio.
just had an exclusive listen to Dark Entities, Undertow Guitar. To keep up with Dark Entities, as well as Jason Lee's other work, follow him on Instagram at Tiki Guitar Player. Trinity Radio. The downfall of Tiki by the 70s happened for a good reason. But the human desire for the occasional escape is still there. One of the reasons we're seeing tiki bars pop up again is because all of us are constantly stressed or we're staring at our phones all day. So whether you go to a tiki bar, unplug on a hike, or just like to be immersed outdoors, a tiki bar or some kind of setting like that can help us just let go for a bit. Just as the world is becoming more digital, so is the music. For modern tropical and atmospheric electronic music, it's impossible to ignore Daniela DeLillo, aka Nora on Pure. Nora Anpur is a South African-born, Swiss-based producer who is best known for her tropically-infused cinematic soundscapes. Personally, I regard Nora Anpur as the modern-day flag bearer of tropical and deep house music. Um, but being an outdoors enthusiast, Nora Anpur gets most of her inspiration from being immersed in nature, whether that's scuba diving, snorkeling, hiking, or snowshoeing. Um, is result in this organic and nature-infused production and DJ sets. Nora Anpir describes her sound as nature-inspired music. She is known for sampling sounds of water, animal calls, wind, against a deep house beat, and often classical piano melodies. From her EP, Polynesia, this is Nora Anpir, Lioness on Trinity Radio.
You just heard Noran Pure's Lioness. Like her other songs, Lioness paints a certain scenery combining tribal percussion with Western instrumentation like piano leads, strings, wind instruments, and synthesizers. Again, Noran Pierre was born in South Africa and currently lives in Switzerland as being in one of the most biodiverse countries in the world and now Switzerland, which is a total outdoors destination. You can kind of see where the inspiration from her tracks comes and she is countless by now. So if you check out Daniela's Instagram at Nora on Pierre, N-O-R-A-E-N-P-U-R-E, it's a really beautiful grid where you can see excursions from like waterfalls, sunsets, hikes, forests, mountains etc. from all around the world. Um, in 2019 and 2020, she won the International Dance Music Award for Best Female House Artist. Noran Pierre has a deep house radio show of her own on Sirius XM, Chill. Uh, you can also check out her label, Purified Records, which raises up other deep house and progressive music producers. She's constantly touring the world. So to support her, you can purchase music on Beatport or catch her on a tour stop from urban to exotic destinations around the world. All right, Night Blooms, this concludes episode eight of Trinity Radio, Zombie Cocktails. Thank you for being with me today. If you liked today's episode, please give me a like or a five-star review. That'll move us up the charts for some visibility for other electronic and goth music lovers. Once again, I am DJ Tesherine. Catch you next month for episode nine, a special Halloween version of Trinity Radio. Aloha.